who is your number one listen to artist this year in 2019? Half man, half biscuit, same as every year for the last 30 years. What what genre of music? They they are very obscure dad rock. <laughs> I have literally never. No, heard never. Of. Well, why would you have done? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Glass of Seawater, the Fusion Energy Podcast. Uh, my name is Sam, a PhD student from Durham, and this is my first time hosting, so this is very exciting for me. Um, and my fellow um, PhD student is here, Bhavan Patel. Yep, and uh, my PhD is basically very relevant to today's episode, uh, where I'm, I'm focusing on looking at designing a compact fusion reactor. But we'll get to the specifics of which one in a bit. And uh, today we have a really special guest, CEO of Cullum Centre for Fusion Energy, uh, Professor Ian Chapman. Certainly never been described as a very special guest. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm a plasma physicist. I've been here for 16 years and yeah, now attempting to lead the organisation. And today's topic, uh, so we'll be discussing fusion energy power plants. And this episode is going to be called the, the Step Episode. Um, so this is specifically an introduction to a fusion power plant design that will be made at um, Cullum um, called STEP. So first of all, I think maybe we should discuss what, what actually STEP is. Well, I mean, we should probably talk about what STEP stands for, because it, it's not just a pun on, like, oh, it's a stepping stone to the next bit of fusion. It's uh, actually, there's an acronym, which if I'm not wrong, and there's, there was a few going around before, but I think it's Ferrocore Tokamak for energy production. That's right, even though you can't really produce energy, but no. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll allow that to slide. We, we've got high hopes. Factual inaccuracy. <laughs> but uh, the, the reason it's not just electricity production is that um, Fusion also offers you an opportunity to use heat. Right? We have a lot of heat, um, so there's co-generation opportunities too. So we didn't want to limit just to electricity. We're thinking about how you might use Fusion for things beyond electricity as well. But you're right to pick up on the the utility of the moniker in that you can use step in all sorts of narrative ways like step episode so yeah well done um, this idea was conceived quite recently and the uk government has given us 222 million pounds um, to create a conceptual design this is not to build the reactor but to study the physics the technology and the engineering challenges we might face going towards building a, a fusion power plant Step is kind of special because it's going to be specific type of shape. So this will be a spherical tokamak. So the, the main the main difference that you look at when you see these two, if you saw two reactors side by side, is the actual shape of it. So a regular conventional, as they're known, tokamak is basically like a ring donor. It's the it's quite wide away from the middle. It's a bit flat. It's you know just a pretty standard looking ring donor. What a spherical tokamak is different in that everything is kind of pulled really close to the middle. So instead of like a uh, a ring donut it's more close to like a cord apple so the the plasma is very 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 close to the actual central hole uh, where the usually you have a massive magnet going through so that's the main difference and there's a bunch of different um, advantages and disadvantages for going spherical uh, compared to a conventional which I'm sure we'll get to but that is the main pictorial difference. Cullum has a lot of expertise in spherical tokamaks since we started in 1991 with START um, which actually, fun fact, holds the record for the best uh, ratio of plasma pressure to magnetic pressure, um, I think. So that's a lot of bang for your buck. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. A lot of bang for your buck. I mean, you really pay for your magnets. That's the the highest capital intensity of, of ITER or future power plants. 
So if you can make most efficient use of the magnetic field, you can save money. And that's the genesis of the spherical tokamak. I've seen um, some designs for demo-like devices and other just huge power plant reactors, and the magnets came up to like a quarter of the total cost, like just the magnets. That's you know including all of the, the the buildings and the concrete and the vacuum vessel and the tritium breeding and all of these other things. The magnets are incredibly expensive. So I guess the idea of step is to make it as compact as possible, so we can make it smaller, make it cheaper. Yeah. Maybe we should discuss sort of how do we even design a tokamak? How do we even go about designing a power plant? We're talking about physics versus engineering designs. How do we even come up with this in the first place? It's a, it's a good question, actually. Um, and the way, so, so let's talk about ITER, because ITER is very close to what, what a power plant will require. Um, the way ITER is organized and set up is is effectively like the plant breakdown so you start in the middle and you have the plasma and you move out and you have the containment system which is the vacuum vessel and the magnets and then you have the in-vessel components so the diverter and the first wall and things that are armor that's going to be used inside the machine then you go ex-vessel and look at all of the balance of plant associated around the outside there are no blankets in ITER but test blanket modules um, heating systems diagnostics um, then you have a division looking at operations and maintenance and the robotics that you're going to require to maintain the machine. And then finally, in a reactor, you'd think about buildings, civils, turbine hall, connection to the grid, primary coolant, and those aspects. So the best way to design is to think of the, the holistic plant and then design those components and, and try to look at all the interdependencies between them. So I think the, the thing that makes STEP a bit special is that, well, I think special relevant, is that it's very recently got like a lot of funding from the government, which I think shows that the government is quite serious about moving forward with this kind of, at least this idea of going for a compact fusion reactor. And this money, I, I think, is going to be used for over the next five years to get an actual physics-based case, I guess you could call it. Yeah, I call it a uh, concept design. Right. You might call that a preliminary design, but it, the, the aim is essentially to, to show that there are no showstoppers, that there, there is a way of having the complete integrated plant and no known showstopper that would stop you designing the detailed engineering design of, of that basis. Sort of like the rough idea for a blueprint. Yeah, exactly. Um, and see where that goes. Yeah, a concept. Maybe we should talk about what the main goals of STEP are. The main one is sort of in the name. If it's for energy production, we want to be able to put net energy out. So we want to be able to get more power out than we put in. How will STEP do that? <laughs> so fun fundamentally, you have to produce enough fusion power. Um, a design like ITER, ITER would not, does not have enough thermal power production to compensate for all of the recirculating power that you would have in the associated balance of plant um, to actually put net electricity on the grid. Um, now, ITER's not designed to do that. It was never designed to produce net electricity. Um, but you'd have to scale up from ITER to sort of gigawatt thermal rather than 500 megawatt thermal um, to actually produce net electricity. And that's roughly the aim of STEP, is around gigawatt thermal level, which means that you can, having recirculated power into all of the plant that you need to hold the, the plasma and confine the plasma, you still produce uh, a net electricity gain. Yeah, there's going to be like a, a set amount of power you need just to run the plant. Mm -hmm. So you need to have significant excess of that in order to actually put power on the grid. So ITER has a Q equals 10, which means the plasma is putting 10 times the power out than in. 
but and step will also have a q equals 10 but, but the fact is that it's got double the power so then that excess allows you to actually get something onto the grid mm -hmm. whereas ito would probably struggle to do that um yeah so i guess step's going to have to produce its own fuel which is the key difference between step versus any other tokamak or power plant design that's currently available so we need to produce more tritium than is used in the fusion reaction will step be full of breeding blankets yeah so st step common to pretty much every reactor design will if you're looking to produce net electricity you also have to think about how you are self-sufficient in tritium you have to think about how you can maintain the machine and that the availability is high you have to think about your waste routes there's lots of things that you have to do for a reactor design and step has to answer all those questions On tritium breeding, this means we'll probably have a pretty harsh environment in step. We're looking at a lot of neutrons, a lot of radioactivity, um, a lot of heat fluxes. So um, how how are we going to do any maintenance on this plant? How, how do we currently do maintenance on, on plants? Because I know Jet has recently, with all of the robotics... Um, robotic arms to do all the, the tile replacements that's like really really helped with being able to improve the longevity of, of fusion devices so i guess um do the advances in like robotics really help step in this way or where do you think yeah. it'll make the most impact A absolutely uh, availability and maintenance is one of the absolutely key issues that you have to address for a reactor if you look at what affects fission stations for instance Availability is key for the cost of electricity and for whether the station makes any economic sense. And ultimately, if fusion works, it works in a market. Um, so it has to have its place in the market. And if the availability, if the machine only runs half the year, the cost of electricity would be terrible. You know, if, if EDF are down for a day of unplanned maintenance, mm -hmm. it affects their share price. You know, so, so it really matters. Um, and availability is a big issue for fusion, and we don't generally design for availability. We didn't design JET for availability. It's an, it's an experiment. It wasn't designed to be running 90% of the time. Um, and you're right to point out that we do have some experience of maintaining and upgrading the machine using robots, long boom robots that come in from the side. Um, that's not necessarily the way you'd want to, to design a, a power plant because it's it's difficult to get access through ports on the midplane and really you'd like to come in at the top and lift out big segments rather than tiny little tiles you want to lift out a whole blanket segment in one go and that's one of the one of the many advantages of a spherical tokamak is that the plant is smaller and so the bits that you're lifting are smaller and potentially you could access from the top rather than from the side and take out big components all in one go and hopefully keep the plant available more of the time. Mm. So I think um, an idea that I've heard floating around is you have this central column in the middle where you have a bunch of current and you can physically remove that and then you can basically enter through the middle and obviously from that, from that point you can just basically access the entire machine with relative ease rather than having to design a robot that has to go around corners because I mean it sounds simple but it's surprisingly difficult and especially when you're working with like a a multi-billion dollar device you don't want to you want to make sure there are no accidents and you want to minimize that risk mm. so making it as easy as possible to maintain the device to, to do all the little checkups and you know make sure everything is running i think that's a good thing that i think it's good that that's being thought about this early on because uh, if, if you, you don't want to be stuck like halfway down the road where you're like oh i need to go back and fix a bunch of stuff so the fact that we're thinking about this so early i think is a promising sign yeah, I think that sounds really good too. Um, 
I guess on the topic of having to run for long pulses, we're looking at step being a device that runs for minutes, hours. Steady state, ideally. Steady state. Yeah. And what do you, what would you mean by steady state? I mean that you you drive enough current that you can run in steady state, so that you you don't need a solenoid, you don't need to swing the current, and um, and you're not then pulsing. You're you're effectively running for days. Um, that's the aim. We're going to mm. see how close we can get to that. And I guess how how does step then fit into putting electricity on the grid so you say we want to run for like days at a time um how do you actually connect step up to the national grid like do you need to how would you speak to the national grid to say oh we're going to actually put some electricity on the grid can they even accept it in the form that step wants to give it out yeah uh, as essentially when you talk to grid operators and, and major utilities if you're anywhere under 500 megawatts it's, it's relatively easy to fluctuate on and off in a relatively unplanned way when you're Hinkley point at 3.2 gigawatts they really need to know when you're on and when you're off because it affects grid balancing um, when you're under when you're under half a gig then it's okay to be sort of a bit more sporadic that's um, really interesting. So, so that's one of the things we're aiming for is that 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 first entry point is under 500 megawatts electric yeah because i thought i don't know you'd have to be constantly like talking to them and saying you know we're going to put this much on and they'd be like oh hang on actually we can't hmm. load that right now or yeah. Um, especially with the way when, when I saw when, when Jet runs to draw electricity from the grid, at certain points it's come up and said, no, we can't run the machine because National Grid has said, no, we can't take yeah. that energy from the grid. So I was imagining some sort of relationship the other way where yeah. you're having to... Well, well, well Jet is a good <laughs> case in point, right, where we, we can draw 400 megawatts live from the grid, but we can't draw the 1.4 gigawatt which is needed to run Jet. So we take a gigawatt and put it into flywheels... And that we can't just draw from the grid, but we can take the 400 megawatts. So we have a combination of electricity from flywheels and what we can draw straight from the grid to operate jet. Um, you're entirely right. The step will be the op opposite way. But if we'd have aimed for 1.4 gigawatt electric, then we wouldn't have been able to put that on randomly. It would need to be completely assured. And this is first of a kind. So we're not going to be off of that assurance. So we're aiming below the 500 megawatt electric level. So... Are you actually picturing step is actually connected to the grid? So this reactor will eventually generate electricity that will power someone's kettle somewhere in the UK? Yeah, of course, that's not, not decided yet. I mean, mm. I'm imagining that, but it could be that instead we connect to something which needs sporadic electricity and demonstrate that we can supply that user, whatever right. it may be, um, because it's first of a kind. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's highly likely the availability won't be 90%. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, it might not be best to put onto the grid. It might just be best to use the electricity for right. some other purpose. But 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 um, to actually demonstrate that we are getting some form of electricity uh, or energy out. Exactly. Either way, there will be a demonstration. You know, like the first Chicago pile just lit a light bulb. That's what it did. Yeah. Um, mm. In this case, we'll put a few hundred megawatts into something, mm. whatever it may be, either the grid or into something that needs the electricity. But we'll demonstrate that there's net electricity produced. Right. It's the aim. That's exciting. Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, and I guess this sort of buzz around STEP, um, particularly to do with STEP being involved more with industry or we're going to have more private sort of involvement or consulting involvement with yeah. building STEP. Do you think that by STEP showing we can put energy on the grid and we can do this with the assistance of private companies or industry, it sort of makes Fusion look 
more more serious as a as an electricity generator and maybe we'll get more investment from these industries how do you think steps going to change that game i think the the fusion paradigm is completely shifting um, the relationship between the public and the private sector has completely transformed over the last five years and a big part of that is ITER um, where five years ago we'd go and talk to big industrial primes and say you know come and help solve our problems come and get involved in ITER and they'd say well fusion's 30 years away we can't make any money out of that so they wouldn't touch it whereas now they come to us and say can you help us get involved in ITER because companies are actually making money out of fusion today um, through participation in ITER. So that's been transformative for the visibility of fusion and the technical challenges of fusion in the supply chain. You also see that there's big investment going into private companies, into um, startup companies in fusion, of which there are more than 40 now around the world, and they've raised well over a billion dollars. Um, so there is private money, there's market appetite for investment in fusion, um, and you, you're now seeing ventures like STEP, and STEP is not the only one like this, where there will be deliberately from the outset a strong partnership between the public sector, public sector body like the authority and, and private sector companies who can help deliver it. And, you know, there's a, there's a machine being built in Italy which is a joint venture between public sector organisations and a private sector company. So it's you know, under an umbrella of a joint venture, which is the first time that's been done in fusion. So the paradigm is definitely shifting. That's good. And I guess that's... Having having this investment is really good for us, or at least having all these competition with the private sort of fusion sector is really good for us because that makes public sector sort of keeps us on our toes. We've got yeah. more competition. We can yeah. um, race towards getting this first sort of energy Look, producing tokamak out there. But fusion is tough, right? And the more smart people working on fusion, the faster we get to fusion. Do you see your step working alongside with these other fusion companies to try and progress? each other or do you see it as a bit more of a competitive area like how do you picture this fusion community because now when you bring in the private sector obviously things become a bit more tense let's say yeah uh, both is the answer to that um take any established sector you know do do rolls royce work with pratt and whitley on on airplane engines yes and no right they they compete but they also share technology and work together and share ip so any established sector you see that sort of they call it competitive mate, right? There's, there's a bit of competition and there's a bit of partnering and Fusion needs to get to that place. So you said that Fusion is very difficult. Building a tokamak is extremely difficult. There's lots of challenges involved. So maybe we should go through a few of the challenges that Step might face, um, particularly since it's spherical tokamak, it's quite small, compact. Um, we'll have an awful lot of heat and energy produced from this machine. Um, so how are we going to look at the exhaust problem in the step? I guess that's one of the main challenges of um, of the engineering and materials science side of it. Yeah, exhausting heat from a spherical tokamak is, is probably the fundamental challenge for a compact design. If you can't get the heat out, you know it's a, it's a showstopper, right? That, that machine could never be built. Um, that's why mass upgrade is so important and, and frankly so exciting in that it's the first time that we're ever testing this new novel configuration using a, a new type of diverter geometry which will allow us to exhaust the heat from a compact machine. Now, it's experimental science. It might not work like we predicted that it will, but if it does, if it really does drop the heat flux incident on the wall by sort of up to a factor of 10, then that's a complete transformation, a big disruption in our field and a, a big step step forward. And you think that'll then influence the design of step? Um, we'll, we'll be looking at step being a diverter configuration spherical tokamak akin to mast, but 
significantly larger uh, than mast upgrade, I guess. That's right. That's what we're assuming at the moment. So we're assuming that STEP will use the same diverter technology that we've designed and built into mast upgrade. Um, now, if mast upgrade doesn't work as well, then that, that causes fundamental problems for STEP, and we need to find a way to make the, the, the diverter perform at the level it needs to in mast upgrade. Now, it could be the opposite way, right? It might work even better than we're saying, mm-hmm. in which case that brings added benefit to STEP. There's already quite a lot of evidence that the diverter configuration is very good for reducing the heat loads. TCV has done quite a lot of like fancy diverter configurations. They can basically make any plasma shape under the sun. So I think they've been able to test quite a few different things. Yeah, this diverter will be a big thing that we need to look into in the ne- over the next four or five years. I mean, the, the point of the next four or five years is to see whether or not we can do this, or if there are any major issues that, we, we, that is going to stop us from doing this. So... These five years are going to be about researching different diverter configurations, different ways, different solutions to these problems. But it is a tough problem. And getting a, a fancy diverter, in a, even in a very small space, because again, you are still limited by the space, it's not something that's uh, trivial. And talking about space, and this is compact, we need some magnets in there. How are we going to bring the cost down? Well, yeah, so a big a big part of, uh, well, tokamaks in general are magnetic confinement devices, so you need magnets to confine the plasma. And effectively, the stronger the magnets, the better the confinement, the more power you can get out, the more bang for your buck. So it's about trying to design more powerful and more powerful magnets and getting a lot more, something a bit more, higher magnetic fields in that smaller space. And people are looking into different types of magnets called uh, superconductors and these potentially could be game-changing if if we can utilize them yeah so so there are lots of ways that you could do this um, we're currently assuming that we'd probably use a low temperature superconductor much like has been used in in ITER um, there are people advocating for high temperature superconductors they're a bit more embryonic in that they're, they're earlier in their development cycle if you really can develop high temperature superconductors on the right scale with joints and they, they can withstand the neutron load, then yeah, we, we'd, we'd adopt them and, and use them, use that technology. Yeah, we've seen some huge advancements in different types of superconducting magnets in the past five to ten years, so who knows where it's going to go in the next mm. five years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. And some of the field strength now that is being developed by high-temperature superconductors is enormously promising. Mm. Now, now we have to see whether we can do it on scale and whether we can design and build a reactor that can cope with those with that field strength and the enormous forces between those magnets. But yeah, there's, there's huge promise there. I mean, these neutrons effectively put a lower limit on the size of the device, though, because you need a set amount of thickness to stop the neutrons going from the plasma and hitting the superconductor. So you, can't, you, you really can't get much smaller than whatever that thickness is. I'm not going to quote a number. Let's say it's like half a meter or so. So you wouldn't be able to get any smaller than that. So that's kind of putting a lower bound on what the size of the device would be. Obviously, the, the larger we make the device, the more expensive it becomes. So we've got these two bounds where the neutrons and the shielding for the superconductors really puts a lower limit and then the cost and puts an upper limit. What size are we currently looking at for STEP? I mean, can we, can we put some dimensions on it now? or We're, we're still exploring that parameter space. Um, Somewhere between two and three meters would be my guess, but but mm. we're still exploring that. That would be the the major radius, so the the distance from the very middle of the device to the middle of the plasma. Yeah. The 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 full actual width of the device would be probably like twelve meters, and maybe again twelve meters high. Yeah, which is about the size of jet, roughly. So steps looking to have its first plasma around twenty forty. 
So if we think about the current fusion timeline, we've got mass upgrade coming on in 2020. We've got Eater's first plasma 2025. We've got demo devices probably in the 2050s. So steps sitting somewhere between Eater and demo. Um, where where do you think Steps filling a, a niche, or where, where do you think Steps places in in all of this? Look, I mean, the first thing to say is that 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 timeline is very ambitious, right? We're deliberately setting ourselves an ambitious timeline, but that's done for two reasons, I guess. One is that we want to get fusion onto the grid as quickly as possible to address climate change, and we're very cognizant of the fact that the the environment is not healing itself, and we need to do something as quickly as possible. So we're being bold and ambitious. Um, the second reason is that through the build of ETER, and I talked about how the supply chain are really engaged with ETER because they see work in it today, um, that supply chain will be building all of these components for ETER, and most of that stuff is done by 25, pretty much all of it's done by 2030. If you're not building again until 2050, that supply chain just atrophies and you lose capability and capacity. So you really need to segue onto the construction of the next device. And so we're deliberately choosing a timeline for step which allows a segue for that for that supply chain from ETER onto the next next step. Yeah. Um <laughs> wondering how long do we hit a step pun? Cheesy, eh? Bamin uh, loves that pun. <laughs> sort of a symbiotic relationship between like step and ETER. So you think yeah. a lot of the technology that we develop in ETER we can basically sort of copy paste into into a step device. Absolutely. One of the interesting things that you mentioned was us helping with climate change. So where do you see fusion sort of in the energy mix? Or do you reckon it's going to just soak up a large proportion of the energy mix by 2050? Or how do you see that sort of progressing? Fusion is not going to be a big part of the energy mix by 2050, right? If if, it's ambitious, if we turn step on in 2040, that that doesn't mean we have a thousand plants by 2050, which is a significant fraction of the energy mix. Um, but equally, 2050 is not a cliff edge, right? Where all of a sudden everything's fine by 2050, or it's not, and the world shrivels up and dies. You know, it just gets harder thereafter. You know, 80% of our energy, 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels, and that's just astonishing. How are we going to displace 80% of your energy? You know, there's been a big push on renewables, and I'm all for renewables, right? Very pro decarbonisation, but still, 80% is from fossil fuels. So we need big baseload sources to displace all of that oil and gas that we, we currently burn. And so I just think the need for fusion just, just is going to exponentiate. So the sooner we get there, the better. Do you have anything else you wanted to... Um, no? I'm just really excited for fusion in general. <laughs> Every time I do this podcast, it makes me feel really good. Nice and warm. And, yeah, that's nice. I had one controversial question, which was, do you have a favourite taco mag? Jet. Jet is the best taco really? mag in the world. Yeah. Why, why do you think that? Because it's the biggest and the best. Right? Size <laughs> matters, I'm afraid. <laughs> it produces the, the, the most eater-like conditions, the most power plant relevant conditions. And it's the most exciting place to do, to do research. You know, you, you know when you're running a jet shift that every shot really matters and costs and you're very conscious of that. Whereas when you're on some of the smaller devices, you take a few more risks. Whereas on jet, everything you do really matters and you think about it for weeks and months in advance. Do you have any good stories from your time? You spent a lot of time in the control room, I guess, at Maston, at jet, so you must have some good stories about anything really weird or interesting you saw. 
Yeah, I, I'll give you two stories, and neither of them are really about plasma physics. Um, <laughs> but definitely my most embarrassing time in the mass control room was I had to do an interview. The old control room was relatively low-rise, low-ceiling, and um, halfway through this television interview in front of a packed control room, um, they cut, cut me off and said, we're going to have to pause there. So I said, well, was I not saying what you needed? Was the level wrong? I said, oh, no, 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 what you were saying was lovely, but we're getting too much glare off your head. <laughs> oh, oh, my dear. God. Which is great. So they then <laughs> brought out makeup and covered me. In, oh, um, man, I was not expecting that. <laughs> yeah. And then best time in, in the jet control room will have been um, one of the shifts after changing the Etolite wall, um, which were really exciting because it was virgin territory and it was new ground and there were hundreds of people, hundreds of people in the control room. And that's that's a real buzz when you're in an environment like that where you have people that are really excited about doing brand new things that have never been done in the world. Um, so those shifts were really exciting. I love that when you get full mm. neutral beam power, all the sources fire, 30 megawatts out of jet and everyone in the control room sort of goes like, yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, that was a good shot. That was yeah, a good yeah. plasma. No. I love that. Um, Okay, yeah, so um, thank you very much to our guest, Ian. Very um, welcome. Ho- hope you enjoyed yourself, and maybe you could make a reappearance again sure, at some point. Sure, no problem. Um, and thank you very much, Bavin, um, helping me through my first time doing a no worries, podcast. No worries. And we'll see you again next time. That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. That was a really good episode. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.